Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 6 as we continue our journey through the book of Galatians together. We're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 7 of chapter 6, and we're going to make our way through the remainder of the book and finish up Galatians this morning together. So Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, and let me read the remainder of chapter 6 for our text this morning as we journey through that latter portion and finish up the book together. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And Father, we humbly ask just for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit as we again open the Word of God together as an act of worship. We just pray that by your Holy Spirit you would help us, Lord, physically, mentally, most of all spiritually, to be sensitive, to be able to hear the voice of your Spirit and what you would say to us through the Word of God this day. So please bless your Word and speak now by your Holy Spirit's ministry. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the biggest challenges in life, I believe, is sort of constantly having to decide between God's way and our way. And that means either choosing to walk in the Spirit and seeking to glorify Jesus and to experience God's best, God's plan, and God's ideal for our life, or it means living after our fleshly sin nature and doing oftentimes what is self exalting and self-promoting, which usually leads to us more often than not experiencing the problems as the result of choosing our own way. Well, as Paul concludes this letter, notice he again, we're going to see, points us to choosing God's way, the way of the Spirit, and not man's way, the way of the flesh. And the way of the Spirit, we'll see, brings honor to Christ, and it lets us experience God's plan and God's best for us. Look with me in verse 7 as he continues on, as he concludes this letter. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. So Paul here cautions us not to become misguided in our thinking regarding the unalterable law of what we might say as cause and effect. This law that God himself has implemented into creation, God has established this law of cause and effect, sowing and reaping into this world in which we live in, whereby specific actions always cause a corresponding effect 
to end up being the result afterwards. God has instituted, we might say, an unchangeable law of sowing and reaping in this present world. Now, what you sow, of course, is the, is the seed that you are planting. It's the decision to plant a specific seed. That's what sowing is. And what you reap, of course, then is the tree or the fruit, the byproduct of that particular seed that was sown, that's produced from that seed and what's encoded within it that brings forth the result of what has been sown. So again, if you plant pumpkin seeds, you're always going to end up with pumpkins. You're never going to end up with oranges or apricots. If you sow an apple seed, you're always going to end up with an apple tree that then continuously produces apples as the fruit of it. And this is a law of nature, honestly, that we can rely upon. It is 100% guaranteed. It never is going to let us down. It's never going to be altered. You can rely on it to work that way 100% of the time. You cannot change it. You can't bring about a different outcome. You can't plant a particular seed, an apple seed, and somehow do something to ultimately bring about a different type of fruit other than the seed in which you specifically planted. So uh, again, if you plant a cornfield, you're not going to get a field of wheat. You're going to get a field full of corn. And it's so important that we recognize this because this is God's order that whatever the text says right there, whatever a man sows, that he will, guaranteed, he will also reap. It's a relationship of cause and effect where one thing happens and it causes a specific effect as the other thing happens that what is done directly determines what will be the outcome for whatever we sow that we will, it's guaranteed, also reap. Now, even as that law exists in nature, that sowing and reaping, sowing certain seeds causes us to reap certain fruit, and even as that is a natural law of the soil and of the seed, that same principle of sowing and reaping also holds true in the human soul. That is, the decisions that we make are somewhat, you might say, the seeds that we sow that then bring about the resulting fruit that we end up experiencing in our lives as we live. Each decision, always remember this, I specifically always try and emphasize this when I'm talking to young people, each decision that we make as human beings, whether small or, or major decisions, it's like planting a seed. And one of the greatest ways, I think, to look at decision-making, it's like seed planting. And as you make a decision, as I make a choice, you plant a particular type of seed, and those decisions we sow will determine the fruit that we then experience in our lives. It will bring about the resulting outcomes or consequences or life experiences. And repeated choices that we continuously sow then end up, if you would, producing an entire field of a crop full of those type of decisions that we end up experiencing as a result. So the natural law of sowing and reaping in nature perfectly illustrates, God says, the spiritual law of the human soul and life experience for all of us. So that's why Paul says here to us in verse 7, having seen this so clearly in God's order in nature, don't be deceived about this issue of sowing and reaping. Don't allow yourself to become misguided in your thinking or in your perspective about this, that if you do certain things, you're going to reap certain consequences. It's just an unavoidable thing. Don't ever allow yourself to think wrongly that you can do something foolish, 
that I can do something harmful, I can do something wrong, and that somehow no bad fruit is going to come out of that. Uh, That's just completely self-deception, the Bible says, that somehow we can do what's unhealthy and make bad choices and think that we would avoid negative consequences. God is saying to us, as creator of all things, God's ways are that whatever you sow, that you will guaranteed also end up reaping. And we have to stay alert to this reality as we're sowing the seeds of life decisions all throughout our journey on this earth. And he says here in verse 7, not only to not be deceived, but he says, be aware God will not or is not mocked. That is what God himself has set forth as creator of all things in this world and its existence. In the law of sowing and reaping, you can't think wrongly that somehow in your arrogance you can kind of mock God, thumb your nose at God, and, well, I don't care what you know what, what anybody says. I'm going to do this anyway. And he says, look, don't think you can mock God and what he has set in order in creation as the creator and how things operate in this world. He's saying this is an order that happens even if you disregard God. Even if you arrogantly mock God, it's not going to stop or alter this law of cause and effect from taking place in your life. The consequential results will always still come. And understand, reaping what we sow is always a matter of time. There's always a gap of time between sowing and reaping. And in the law of sowing and reaping, we want to understand that. Farmers understand that. You don't plant the seed or plant the crop today, and all of a sudden tomorrow you have a full harvest field. There's always a gap of time that exists between sowing and reaping. And there may be a gap of time before the harvest comes, but eventually it will. And that's why the Bible says to us here in love, don't be deceived. Don't ever think that you're getting away with things or somehow God's overlooked or uh, that God's endorsing or he's decided to accept something and start foolishly kind of mocking God in arrogance, thinking somehow you've beat the system and you can do what's against God's will and plan and somehow not experience the negative outcomes that are attached to those kind of decisions. Now, look, this also works in the positive sense as well. A lot of times when we talk about sowing and reaping, we just think of the negative. Oh, man, if you sowed some bad decisions, you're really going to reap a real mess and lots of problems. Well, look, the same law of cause and effect works in sowing and reaping in a positive way as well. And Paul's going to discuss that even in this very chapter here, that as we do what's right, we also may not see immediate results. There may not be automatic good fruit, but in the same way it works in the negative sense of doing what's wrong, it just as much works in the positive sense. That we may not see immediate fruit because there's a gap of time between sowing and reaping, but we can trust God will not be mocked. God has promised that whatever we sow, we will also reap. And sometimes it's just a matter of being patient and not getting discouraged with God's timing or angry, but being patient for the fruit and trusting God, you won't be mocked because you've said that whatever a man sows, he will also reap. Well, Paul then goes on in verse 8 to kind of illustrate this further regarding the spiritual life specifically of sowing and reaping. He says, verse 8, first of all, for he who sows to his flesh, that is again the sin nature, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. So Paul cautions, if we sow to our sinful nature, this thing we call the fleshly nature, the human nature, our lower nature. He says, if we do that, the resulting effect is going to be we're going to start to experience a corrupting influence in our life. 
Now, when he talks here about sowing to the flesh, he's talking about making choices that fulfill the desires of our sin nature, about making decisions and indulging what is wrong in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our speech, in our actions and behavior, and basically indulging what is selfish and participating in sinful activity, whatever that sinful and wrong activity may be. Of course, things it would include like the very list that we looked at not too long ago in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, as he describes some of the evident behaviors of the flesh or the sinful nature, things like sexual sin and, and idolatry and sorcery and hatred and contentions and outbursts of wrath and selfish ambitions and being divisive as a person, being someone who's living in envy or murderous in your heart, harming and being violent towards other people, drunkenness, you know, addiction to substances, living in revelry and just out of control. He's like, if you're doing those kind of things and you're indulging those things, don't think somehow you're not going to reap the corrupting influence of those things in your life. It speaks of anything, whether in that list or not, that rejects God's will and basically is indulging the self-will of our sinful nature within ourselves where we're sowing seeds of wrongdoing in our life. And look, when we choose to sow to the way of rebellion against God, it never works out. It never, ever, ever works out. The Bible even says to us, woe to him who strives against his maker. To strive against God never works, and it is never a winning battle. That's why he says right here in verse 8, if you look at it, he says, sowing to the sinful flesh, he says, that will result in is you will end up reaping of the flesh corruption. And that word corruption that's used there speaks of something decaying, something that's in a rotting process that is ruined or that is dying. And the idea there is we bring a corrupting process into our life experience. When we sow to our sin nature or when someone is sowing sinful behaviors and making sinful choices, they bring a corrupting influence into their life whereby the consequences of that sinful behavior is bad fruit starts to come into their life, rotting decaying fruit starts to happen and their life literally starts to decay in its experience. They basically start ruining their life and things in their life kind of start to become defiled. Good things start to die off and rotten fruit begins to enter into their life. Job says in chapter 4 verse 8, as I've observed, those who plow evil, he says, and those who sow trouble will reap the same. So Job, this great man of wisdom in the Old Testament, says, look, if you go out there and you're plowing evil and you're sowing trouble, you're going to experience trouble. You're going to have trouble in your life and trouble in your life experience. Proverbs 22.8 says, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. So if I do what is wrong, iniquitous, that which is bent and crooked, he says, you can guarantee here's what you'll reap. You're going to reap a lot of pain and sorrow in your life. You're going to have a lot of misery and a lot of regret, and there's going to be a lot of sorrow in your life. Proverbs 1, verse 30 to 31 says, They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way. The idea is eating the miserable fruit 
of the own way that you've chosen to go on down. And boy, I tell you, consequences are great teachers. Sometimes we are too quick to intervene to try and stop people from experiencing consequences when basically what we're doing is interrupting God's order of sowing and reaping and cause and effect. God says sometimes what needs to happen to get somebody to stop bad behavior is they need to eat the fruit as much as it may be disgusting and poisonous and toxic and miserable. He says, but if they eat the fruit of their own way, they'll say, this is really miserable fruit. I'm sick and tired of eating this stuff. And God says sometimes that's what makes them start sowing different seeds. They stop sowing those seeds because they start eating the bad fruit of their own way. Now, sowing to the flesh, I think, also includes just living foremost as well, just for worldly things. Uh, Again, whether it's just the material aspects of life or this fallen world system, the Bible tells us, 1 John 2, not to love the world system because its ways and the things of this world system are corrupting. They're dying. And it's because 1 John 5 says that this whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So even as we sow to the flesh, sometimes it's just a matter of just sowing and investing too much into worldly things and becoming too carnal in our investments in the way that we live our life. And to sow to our fleshly nature foremost will also lead to the corruption of experiencing a good life that God wants for us. And it will lead to the corruption of really our spiritual fruitfulness as it starts to hinder our life with God. Jesus warned of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the pleasures of this life choking out, Jesus said, the word of God and its power to where we bring no fruit to maturity. Look, please always remember this and do not be deceived, God's word says. We can't sow to the flesh and then pray for crop failure. Too many of us have made that mistake in our lives. Too many still live in that self-deception, constantly miserable because they want to sow to their flesh, and then they just want to somehow pray for a crop failure, and that doesn't happen. God says the way that it works is what you sow, you will reap, and those destructive consequences do come. And they bring something that is in accordance with what was done, and we start to reap the bad fruit. And it may take time for that corruption to come, but those corrupting consequences will come. You can't escape them. And don't ever be deceived and think somehow you can get away with sowing to your flesh and you can avoid the unpleasant consequences. Much better to just simply abstain from fleshly lusts. If you abstain from fulfilling sinful desires, then you don't have to worry about reaping bad fruit in your life. It's the best way to just avoid the miserable fruit. Don't plant bad seeds and there won't be misery and unpleasant fruit in your life. And if perhaps even this morning you are sick and tired of a field full of rotten fruit in your life, let me simply help you by saying it's not complicated. Stop planting the wrong seeds. Stop sowing to your sinful nature and repent. Repent that you can begin to stop experiencing the bad fruit and let that old field of bad fruit die off and start sowing in the right field, he's going to say. So, again, what is the way to avoid sowing to the sinful nature? Well, in the same way in the spiritual life. If we walk in the Spirit, then we don't gratify the lust of the flesh. So he says, look, don't sow to the sin nature and reap corruption, but, verse 8, notice... He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So notice the contrast. 
great wisdom, God says, look, I don't want you to reap the corruption of a bad, miserable life and a decaying process of your life. God says, so the way to stay away from that is just occupy yourself with walking in the spirit. And he says, sowing to the things of the spirit. There's a contrast in this. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But he says, just as guaranteed, if you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap of the spirit everlasting life. Now, he speaks of sowing to the Spirit. He's, of course, speaking of things like spending time in God's Word, the Spirit-inspired Word of God, whereby when we read it and we hear it taught to us and we spend time being exposed to the Word of God and let it go into our life, it's alive, it's powerful, and it's Spirit-inspired, and it yields spiritual fruit and spiritual strength into our life. God's word imparts life spiritually to us. Sowing to the spirit speaks of things as well, like spending time in prayer and communicating with God and letting the spirit of God help us have conversation with him and worshiping in spirit and in truth, singing, spending time praising the Lord and expressing adoration in that realm of the spirit as we sing and express worship, spending time with fellow believers is a great way to sow to the things of the spirit because as we're with fellow Christians, that's where the ministry of the spirit of God is in full operation. And as we're building each other up and the spirit of the Lord is at work through the lives of God's people as we come together to fellowship, that's where we're inspired spiritually, we're encouraged spiritually, how we get challenged and exhorted and corrected and helped through that fellowship in the spirit with God's people. You know, as we do these spiritual activities, sowing to the things of the Holy Spirit, he says we're going to reap good benefits in our life. We're going to reap spiritual and eternal help the quality of our life experience. Notice he says that those who sow to the Spirit, verse 8, he says, will reap of the Spirit everlasting life. Now, what he's literally saying in the language there is we will reap the quality of everlasting life. Not if we do certain good works, we earn everlasting life. That contradicts Scripture. We understand that. He's speaking of the quality of life, just like sowing to the sin nature brings a corrupting quality to the life experience. He's saying when you sow to the things of the Spirit, which are eternal and everlasting, he says you're going to start to experience a quality of life that is like the everlasting eternal life, a quality of experience in your life that starts to become much like what we'll one day experience in its fullness, like the Bible speaks about, righteousness and peace and joy in the realm of the Spirit. We start to experience the good fruit of a spiritual life through godly living. You bear enjoyable, pleasant, good, healthy fruit in your life. Fruit like we saw in chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, you start to experience love in your life instead of hatred and animosity. You start to experience joy in your life instead of misery and discontent and ungrateful. You start to experience peace in your life and peace with other people. You become more long-suffering and patient and you start to experience kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. You start to experience self-control in your life. And good fruit, good fruit from God starts to produce in your life and you experience this harvest of good things and God says, this is the blessed life I want you to experience. An everlasting quality of life, a foretaste of what heaven's gonna be like in a small way. God says, I want you to have a stable, enjoyable, fulfilling, good life now. And we can experience that by sowing to the things of the Spirit and having that rewarding satisfaction of experiencing God's ideal because we're investing in the things of God by sowing 
to the realm of the Spirit. Now, Paul goes on in verse 9, therefore, it seems with this idea of sowing to the things of the Spirit by saying, verse 9, and let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So Paul cautions here and encourages us to seek to do what's good and not to become discouraged in the effort to continue to live in that way that is good and right before God and continue to do those things which we know are good in God's sight. He speaks of those doing good, of course, referencing what he just talked about in verse 8, sowing to the things of the Spirit, that which is good and godly, serving the Lord by doing good things to help people to let our life be useful, to serve others, to bless others and care about them, seeking to do what's good and right in a situation. When we're faced with something, we choose to do what we know is good rather than what is selfish and wrong. We take the, the higher road and try and do what is good. And look, anything we do for the Lord and for his kingdom and his purposes is always a good use of our time. It's a good use of our labors and efforts. It's a good use of our resources. Any investment we make in that which is the things of God is a good investment. And he says, when you're doing those things and you're doing good, notice God understands a lot of times doing good is not the path of least resistance. In fact, oftentimes in a fallen world with sin curse all upon us and all around us in a difficult world that resists the ways of God, a lot of times doing what's good is not the path of least resistance. It's usually the the harder path. And because of that, it requires sacrifice personally, and it can tend to wear on us physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And sometimes continuing to try to do what's good, God understands, and so therefore he says, let us not grow weary. In doing good. And we appreciate that Paul was willing to say, under the inspiration of the Spirit, let us, including himself, allowing everybody to see that no one is immune from the experience at times of becoming faint-hearted or tired in doing good. And so he says, look, everyone is prone to it. So Paul says, let us. Let us not become weary, he says, worn down in doing what's good. And, you know, perhaps recently you can relate to that very reality in your life that what you have been doing in trying to do what's good, staying in the Word of God and praying, and continuing to sow to the things of the Spirit and trying to walk in the Spirit and not give in to your flesh. And perhaps it's been a wearying process, and you can grow weary in that sometimes. Maybe recently you've been trying to stay the course in some good and right path in a given situation. And maybe you've been facing something where it's a difficult thing, and yet nonetheless, rather than doing what's wrong or or what you shouldn't do, you're trying to do what's good in the situation. And you're trying to honor God, and you're trying to continue to take that right course, and sometimes that can begin to wear on you. It can begin to wear you down mentally and emotionally and even spiritually, and, and sometimes it can be difficult. Maybe you're giving a lot of time to the things of the Lord, and it just it can, it can begin to zap you and kind of weary you physically. And so Paul says, look, when we become weary, the temptation for all of us, of course, is we start to lose heart, and we can start to become discouraged. And we can find ourselves sort of feeling faint and wrestling with feelings of wanting to give up, maybe just wanting to quit or throw in the towel or maybe stop doing what's right. And maybe you've been finding yourself losing heart in the battle. 
Look, that is a natural struggle and challenge to become tired in the work or weary in some good fight that you've been waging. Maybe it's praying for someone you love to get saved and come to Christ. Maybe it's continuing to try and love someone that's not real easy to love and to live with. Maybe it's continuing to do what you can to maintain your moral purity and to continue to do what's right in sexual purity and wait for God's way and God's timing. And whatever it may be, Oftentimes, as we continue to go down that road, he says, it's a process where we can start to become weary and faint and want to give up. But notice the encouragement of verse 9. He says, let us not grow weary while doing good. Notice, not of doing good. While doing good, we grow weary. For in due season, he says, we'll reap if we don't lose heart. Notice again, as I said earlier, there's a gap of time. He talks about a due season. The idea is a specific season. So he's reminding us there is always this gap of time in sowing and reaping, and that's how it works in the laws of nature, and it's also how it works in life. Now, the hard part is, especially in today's culture, we live in such an instant success, automatic return type world that it's hard for us at times in that waiting process because we expect instant reward automatic return we expect things automatically to happen and sometimes it's a very long waiting period in fact you're interesting you do a little research there are certain fruits and plants that literally from the time of planting to the time you get good ripe fruit literally can be years from the time you first plant something and the same thing is true in life sometimes there is a long delay it may for some even be until the eternal dimension till that reaping process actually comes. Yet the promise is in due season, when the season is right, we shall reap. The experience of good fruit will come, the harvest will come in God's perfect time, and we have to trust the Lord like the patient farmer and just keep planting those seeds and trust that in due season we will reap. The good decisions, the good acts, the the good choices, God's going to honor that in time. And let me be one to encourage you on the promise of God, not my promise, but on the promise of God in verse 9, in light of that, keep going. Just keep going, keep praying, keep loving, keep serving, keep walking with the Lord and doing what is good and right in His sight, and you will reap the good fruit of that in time. I have seen it in my life, I have seen it in the lives of others, and don't let the weariness in doing good ever cause you to give up or throw in the towel, trust that God's timing and God's order will come to pass and you will ultimately reap the wonderful good things that God has from doing things God's way. He says, verse 10, in light of that, therefore, as we have opportunity, he says, let us do good, notice, to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So take notice, what's one of the best ways to stay occupied in doing what's good? Even sometimes when you get weary and then you start to get discouraged and and kind of worn out and you want to faint and give up, what's one of the best ways to kind of just avoid falling prey to that whole process? Don't overthink it and don't look for results. Just keep doing good. Just stay occupied as much as you can on sowing good. The Bible says of Jesus in his earthly life in the book of Acts that he went about doing good. He just went about doing good. And as the Spirit of the Lord works in me and you, may we just, as his servants, keep doing the same. May we just go about just keep doing good. Keep doing what's beneficial and helpful. 
Keep doing what's right in the sight of God. Keep doing what takes into consideration the welfare of others foremost. Keep doing good works in the society. Keep doing good things in your home. Keep doing what's good and right in your life decisions. And just keep on doing good in your treatment of others and the choices you make. And he says, look, as much as we have opportunity, let us do good, he says, to all. That is to the saved and to the unsaved. That we would just seek to do good like our Lord everywhere that we go. Again, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, it's interesting as Paul makes this statement here, he says, let us, as we have opportunity, do good to all. That word opportunity, I think two things come to mind. First of all, as we have opportunity in the sense of with our lifespan, because none of us know what our lifespan is. Now's the time we have the opportunity to do some good things in this world. Our time is limited. None of us know what the opportunity of our lifespan is. So let's do good while we have energy and the ability in our body to do such. And as well, that word specifically, when you look at it, seems to make a reference to certain times and situations where there's an occasion to act. The idea it's a unique opportunity in the sense that it's a chance to step into a given situation and to do something. And God's reminding us that sometimes a set of circumstances will present themselves where it makes it possible for you or I to act. And in that opportunity, we have a chance to act and step into the story and do something and to actually do something good. God wants us to respond to those opportunities when they present themselves to us to do what's good and right. And we should be looking for these opportunities, looking for divine appointments God sets up for us, paying attention, though we can all be selfish at times. And, you know, but, but looking, God, if you're putting an opportunity in front of me, help me to step up and to do what's good in this situation. Help me to step into the story. And look, we may not always have opportunity because limitations exist upon all of our lives. And maybe we are somewhat encumbered by things that are a part of our life that we don't always have lots of opportunities to do good. But when the opportunity presents itself, don't miss it. He says, as we have opportunity, do what's good. Step into the situation in faith, in a sacrifice, in obedience, and seek to do what's good. And notice he adds specifically the focus, the end of the verse, especially may we do good, he says, to those who are of the household of faith. The idea there is do good to everybody. Do good things among everybody, but he says especially, foremost and chiefly, do what's good for the family of God. For your brothers and sisters in Christ, that should be our priority when it comes to doing what's good, to helping people out, to, to stepping in and doing what's good and right in a given situation. Families always take care of their own household first, and that's how the spiritual realm works as well. That as God's people, should we do good in the world? Should we reach the lost for Christ? Should we help people in the unsaved world? Absolutely, and do it to try and show love and win them to Christ, but first and foremost, especially in the family of God especially among the household of God, we should do good to help our spiritual family when an occasion presents itself in front of us. So Paul says, verse 11, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. It's believed that Paul had a, an eye condition which probably affected his vision. And because of that, as was customary anyway, typically Paul would dictate his letters verbally and an amanuensis, like a secretary, would kind of write down and record what Paul was speaking in many of his letters and correspondences. It seems perhaps maybe the truths of this letter 
were so important to Paul because of these false teachers that we've talked about in this book that Paul says, you know, these things were so critical that he says, I actually took the pen up myself and I scribed out this letter myself. And perhaps that's why he's saying there with an exclamation, see what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. I had to use such big letters because my vision was bad, and that's why you can tell these large letters was my way of saying, this is so important, I want you to know it's from me, and it's from my heart, and hear these very things. He says, verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer the persecution for the cross of Christ. Verse 13, he says, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, as Paul comes to the conclusion of the letter here, he kind of goes back once again, one more time, and addresses some of the issues with these false teachers that were influencing the churches in the area of Galatia. We've talked a great deal about this in our study through the letter. You notice in verse 12 and 13, he twice mentions for repetition's sake what he's already discussed in depth in this letter of how these false teachers wanted these Gentile Christians, non-Jewish converts to Christ, to basically come back under the ways of the Mosaic law and observing circumcision and the entirety of the Old Testament law. And he says they were compelling or persuading the people to be circumcised. And we've talked about the reason for this was they believed that it was necessary to observe the ways of the Old Testament system and the laws and so forth in order to be righteous before God, in order to have a right standing with God. And this was contradicting the gospel of grace. And we've talked about this in depth in the letter. Two things let me point out from verse 12 and 13, since we've already addressed a lot of those other things in the letter, that show kind of the wrong motives in these false teachers who were unhealthy spiritually. The first thing we take note of in verse 12 and 13 is their pride made them want to appear as if they were spiritual. They were unhealthy spiritually, and their pride made them want to appear spiritual. Do you notice what Paul says in verse 12? He says they desire to make a good showing in their flesh. The idea is that in their fleshly activities, in their actions, they were trying to make a good showing. The idea is a good display of how spiritual they were. They just wanted to impress people. Oh, wow, he's he's so spiritual. Look what he doesn't do or look what things he observes. And, and they just had this longing to actually want to impress people spiritually. They wanted to draw attention to themselves and actually impress others of how holy or spiritual they were. And they didn't want to confront the persecution that came from suffering of the cross of Christ. He says there as well in the the verses in front of us that they don't want to have to suffer persecution for the cross of Christ because the cross offends human pride. Because the cross of Jesus Christ says that no one is righteous, no, not one, whether you observe every statue of the Mosaic law or you're the most religious person on the planet in human history, that your good works are still not good enough from God's standard. The cross of Christ says that if righteousness could be attained by keeping the law, then Christ would have died in vain. It would have been worthless for Jesus to die. But the cross of Jesus Christ offends the pride of the religious person. The one who wants to feel good in their own moral character. I'm good enough. I'm a moral enough person. I'm a righteous enough person. And the cross of Christ says, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? 
If what you did was sufficient, Jesus would not have had to suffer. And, and this is the thing. These false teachers, they didn't want to deal with the issue of the persecution that came to those who said, no, none of us are good enough. We need the cross of Christ. And they were more concerned just about trying to present their own spirituality, but they were just religious hypocrites. Paul says those who say that you should keep the law, they don't even follow the law themselves. All they want to do, Paul says here, is just be able to boast in fleshly works because their hearts weren't right. They were just religious hypocrites. And look, the flesh will always draw attention to oneself spiritually. That's what these false teachers were doing. They were trying to draw attention to themselves to receive glory and honor as being spiritual men. Now, in contrast, Paul says when the work of the Spirit is happening, attention is not on oneself, attention is upon Christ. Look what he says, verse 14. But God forbid, in light of that, he says that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world was crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul reminds us, in contrast to the false teachers who tried to glory in their own efforts, he says, the Spirit of God is always going to draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says here in his own omission, God help me to never boast in anything except the work that Jesus Christ accomplished in his suffering and his crucifixion and death upon that cross for me. He says that is the only thing that should ever be recognized. Jesus, Paul saying, is the real hero. I'm no spiritual hero. These false teachers, they're no spiritual heroes. He says Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the one who did what was absolutely right, lived the sinless, perfect life in his humanity as God among man, being man and God at the same time. And he says, and Jesus is the one through his sacrifice and suffering on the cross that made us right with God that offers us the forgiveness of our sins, that gives us a way to have a relationship with God, that gives us an opportunity to have access into eternal life, because he says it's through the cross of Jesus Christ and our unification and relationship with him that Paul says here that the world, verse 14, has now been crucified as well to me and I to the world. He says it's through my relationship with Christ and his work on the cross that was fully sufficient. He says that is how... I was disconnected from this fallen world system, and I became a citizen of heaven instead. You know, there is only one spiritual work, Paul wants to remind us, only one spiritual work that is worthy to be noticed or to be admired, and that is the work of what Jesus did for us. And in light of what Jesus did for us, God help me, God help you, if we should ever try and seek attention or be admired for our spiritual life, or our holiness or righteousness in some way, the only thing we should ever celebrate or boast is what Jesus accomplished. This is what the heart of Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit is saying. Look, if you ever find yourself subtly boasting, subtly, in your spiritual ways or your spiritual achievements, look, let us be quick to repent of that spiritual self-exaltation and be very quick instead to begin glorifying Jesus and what Jesus did in his life, death on the cross and resurrection a whole lot more because that's the cure that we need. 
to start boasting and celebrating more in the work of Christ in our worship. Paul says, verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision amounts or avails, he says, to anything but a new creation. So notice, in a relationship with Christ, that's what it means to be in Christ Jesus, in a relationship with Christ, it's not about religious ritual or lack thereof. Paul says it's not an issue of, are you a Jew who's undergone circumcision culturally and religiously in your past? Or are you a Gentile who never experienced circumcision or the ways of Moses? He's saying human works don't amount to anything. They don't earn us a good standing before God. It is only the work of Christ that is the way to be in right standing with God. Through faith in his finished work that alone can make us righteous in our standing before a holy God of sinners. Because God's way is the way of grace. And it is the way of faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus alone. And what matters is true experience with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. The bottom line, look, is have we had an encounter with Christ? And are we a new creation? That's what the Bible speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in a relationship with Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's why Paul says in our verse here, it's not this or that that avails to anything. It's how we experience that new creation. That spiritual transformation where we go from being the old, sinful, fallen person we were to a child of God through a new creation of a spiritual life that comes about as we become brand new in Christ as he forgives us and makes us a child of God. Look, anyone, despite their religious background, their ethnicity, their cultural situation, we all come the same way. We all come through Jesus Christ to be into right relationship with God. And that old identity is removed. That's why he says anyone's in Christ is a new creation. Old things pass away. Our old identity of who we were before we were a Christian, quite honestly, means very, very little. And our brand new identity, which means first and foremost, we are a Christian. Before anything else we are, that we are a Christian is what matters most from God's perspective and our eternal destiny. And that's the identity God wants us to focus on. That old things have passed away, all things have become new, we are now in Christ. And so the chief question is, are you rightly related to Christ? Have you ever experienced that spiritual birth where you became a new creation and a legitimate child of God with the identity of being in Christ as your Lord and Savior. Verse 16, he says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So notice, those who live their spiritual life ruled by God's standard and God's way of choosing, he says, will end up experiencing the peace and the mercy of God. That is, as you make peace with God, you begin to experience the peace of God. And you begin to experience the mercy of God in your salvation, which makes you begin to become a more merciful person to others. Because as you've experienced God's mercy in your life, you want to extend that mercy towards other people. And this was Paul's desire, he says, not only just for Gentiles, but it should be as well. He says, may this be upon all the Israel of God. And when he uses that term, the Israel of God, it's likely a reference to the Jews who actually ended up becoming Christ followers as well, many of them, that is, seeing Jesus as their Messiah. 
And that's probably who Paul is alluding to. And no doubt what Paul is trying to convey is may Gentile and Jew alike, may Gentile or Jew alike know the peace and the mercy of God as Christ rules over them all. And as they all become cognizant of the fact that our new identity is we are family in Christ, not these other things, but that by the grace of God, we are now ruled and in the same family through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, verse 17, for now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. It's almost as if Paul comes back with one more strong statement here in tone, expressing his frustration with the false teachers here once again alluding to this, who caused him opposition. And it's almost as if you can hear his tone in verse 17 saying, if these Judaizers who want to brag and boast about the mark of circumcision in their body, making them so spiritual, he says they honestly know nothing in regards to the true marks of commitment to the Lord in a sincere way. Because he says, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And that is what matters more than any other marking in a life. Now, what's interesting, verse 17, when he uses that word marks there, it's the term stigmata, and it literally was a term that spoke of the markings of ownership that a a person would at times, as a master, brand upon their animal, as a way of branding their animal with a mark of ownership to indicate who they belong to. That's the term that Paul uses there, and Paul, of course, as we know, who was beaten and stoned and persecuted and suffered greatly in what he did for the cause of Christ as his Lord, Paul says, all these scars and battle wounds in my body, he says, these are the marks of ownership. These are the stigmata, the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ that show I belong to him and serve him and not this other world. I serve my master Jesus, and I gladly bear in my body, he says, his marks of ownership that make me reflect my commitment to him more and more in my life. You know, I think it's a good reminder for all of us to evaluate ourselves. You know, as a Christian, ask yourself, what is your life marked by? What's your life marked by? Is your life marked by the patterns of this world? Things like selfishness and, you know, pride and being self-willed and exalting yourself? Or is your life marked by the nature of Christ, of humility and love and self-sacrifice? May our lives be marked with the same things that marked Jesus' life. You know, I love how Paul concludes the letter in verse 18. He says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit Amen, or let it be so. Interesting, when you look at the letter as a whole, Paul began with grace, and fittingly, he ends this letter with grace, because the best way is God's way, and God's way is always the way of grace. God's way is always the way of grace, and how we all need a lot more grace in our lives. And the way to experience that grace is to spend more time with Jesus. Because he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, we don't muster up our own grace, we need to receive a whole lot of grace from Jesus. And he says, may that grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, your inner disposition. May the Lord help us by the power of his spirit in our commitment and walking daily with Jesus Christ, know more and more of the grace of our Lord that we might display that to those around us. Let's pray together.